Hello, everybody. Welcome to Integrated Rhythm. Two swing dancing besties, that's Tosomo Salamani and myself, Bobby White, discuss race and the black experience in swing dancing and jazz dancing and other Afrocentric social dancing. This is a Tosomo and Bobby episode where we had a friend's conversation and it moves around a little bit, but we think there's a lot of fun stuff in there. So, hope you enjoy. You have a topic. I do. I do have a topic. And it came out of talking to Latasha, actually. Um, Who's that? (laughs) What topics ever came out of talking to Latasha? What good. So much good. Um, So... We were actually talking about um, dance styles and then also like cultural surrogacy a little bit. Well, I decided that a summary of it has to do with cultural surrogacy. But um, she, I guess, was doing a presentation somewhere and just communicated, as you know, that like the dance styles that she is, like she she will say that she is a celebrant of different dance styles so she can embody certain things. Um, but she is a dance educator and dance styles, particularly where she has mentorship. And I think that's a pretty common, like well-known fact, right? Um, And so what this does is it delineates the line between like stuff she'll teach and stuff she won't teach, right? And so um, in asking her about this, we were talking about like African dance and Afrobeats and stuff. And, um, I think I was under the mistaken impression that she had like ongoing mentorship in those areas um, because I know she won't teach in those areas. And her response to to the reason why she won't is because she doesn't have ongoing mentorship in that area, which I hella respect. Um, I guess somebody reached out to her and was like, well, Chisomo doesn't have mentorship in those areas and yet she teaches in them. So that was that that question came to her. Anyway, so she told me that, and she was like, I can tell you her response. <laughs> I can tell you her response. <laughs> she was like, do you know her? Like, <laughs> she's like, she's from Africa. Like, she has more <laughs> mentorship in these areas than most of us do. Have, have you met her mom? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's not a mentor. Telling you you're doing it wrong all day until you do it right. I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Yeah. So it was like, so my mother, my aunts, my cousins, my family, the, um, the developer of Zoka Dance, like a dance company that specifically hired me uh, and trained me and mentored me like that, like Namala does not count like (laughs) like, she doesn't count um but anyway so I was just thinking it might be a good thing to talk about a little bit about like dance education and um also like heritage uh versus like the idea of cultural surrogacy like my my thought was that I think we in the U.S. are very familiar with people who are cultural surrogates. Like, they have been handed something down 
And so they may not be able, they may not themselves embody that culture, but they've been chosen by somebody and have been given this cultural inheritance. And so then they pass that down when it comes to, and we see this in swing dancing, right? How many people did Frankie mentor and teach Norma? Same thing. Like um, we see this like history of passing down and kind of like um, giving to a different community. So I feel like that's fairly common for us, but the piece about like your heritage, like I'm doing this because it's coming from, my heritage, I feel like is a lot, it can be harder to understand for some people that are yeah. used to the other, right? Yeah. And so, anyway. No, that makes you a know? lot of sense. And that, that, you know, that made me think of two things. First thing is, is that I, I talked to Tasha about this a while back. Um, we would be dancing around and uh, Tasha and I would do some Lindy, we would do some Balboa. She even helped me teach a Balboa class one time when we had a uh, an, a flight situation, kept my partner at the time from being able to make it to teach. And Tasha was the person nearby that I was like, hey, you want to teach Balboa class? And she was nervous about it. And then I actually ended up just putting the spotlight on her the whole time, mainly because she was her footwork was she was doing awesome stuff, right? And I, I made that the point of the class, that like the point of this this class is to like, try the stuff that this dancer who's not like quote familiar unquote with Balboa is doing as a way of like seeing what's possible or seeing what we might be missing in the yeah. dance. Right. And so that class went great. A lot of people loved it. Uh, but there was around that time, or maybe I had already solved this problem before then, or maybe it was right after that. Anyway, around this time, uh, Tasha would say like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm working on Lindy. I'm working on solo jazz. And I would jokingly say, oh, and she's also a bow dancer. Um, mm -hmm. And she would snicker and laugh, but she never, ever said the words, I'm a bow dancer. Like she she basically like let it glance off. And and, and, mm -hmm. and I noticed that this was like a, a trend whenever the joke came up. Uh, and, you know, I was coming at it from and then I, I realized what happened. So I was coming at it from like an inclusive standpoint, like mm -hmm. and, and almost like a an idealistic standpoint that like you have danced the Balboa, therefore you can call yourself a bow dancer. Like that's where I was coming from. Right. Tasha was coming from the place that she, when she says that she does a dance, that means that she does like she studies right. the dance. She takes it incredibly seriously. And, and there's almost like a, you, you imagine almost like a martial arts student saying like, no, I'm not, I'm not right. this level of, of, of embodier of this art form. <laughs> I'm, you know, I've, I've stepped my toes in kind of thing. And yeah. so I, I began to respect her take on it and stopped making the joke about calling her a bow dancer. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that reminded me of that. And the other thing yeah. that reminded me of, is uh, I that's probably a little bit maybe of the situation when, let's say, uh, a dancer. Uh, I think maybe a lot of non-black dancers might have that little question in their head of like, well, why does this b black dancer 
have this qualification that I don't have in understanding the mm-hmm. dance. And they might take it as a sign of meritocracy of like, mm. you know, I, I've put in the hard work to understand this dance and this other person I haven't seen put in there, or I've been here like five or six years. This other person has just kind of came in the last couple of years. And I see them like getting certain recognition that I'm not getting. Like, is there a, is there a, you know, I hate to use the word affirmative action kind of thing, but is there, is there like something akin to that going on in the scene as opposed to realizing that there are things that, um, that your culture has trained you for in, if you're a black person, you understand certain things about black American dancing that like a non-black person is going to have to work quite hard for and might not ever be able to technically really get on that deep level just because they didn't grow up in black American culture. So that was the other thing it made me think of just throwing that out there, throwing it on the wall, seeing if it sticks. Yeah. I appreciate both of those points. Like one, I think there's this really nice discussion of um, like Tasha's respect for the things that she does. And like this, I mean, anyone who knows Latasha, this goes, this is definitely in um, cultural art forms, but this goes into every sphere of who she is. If she is engaged in something, she's doing it and studying it and appreciating it. And so it's one of the reasons why she's excellent at so many things. Some friends are skilled, right? So in, in Zambia, would say like some of us, we're... <laughs> some of us were very talented and she's one of those people um and then the other piece i i agree i think there are these nuanced elements that i think if we don't look at as a scene um that will that can get us into some trouble you know um and so i and i think that this this piece it's kind of been stuck in my brain for a couple of weeks and um I uh, I like the idea of turning it over and asking some questions about like if we have something that is a black artistic art form um then when there are people who come from as people engage with this there is there are probably nuances there when someone from a black community engages with this thing that there's some nuanced differences there um, and so, and, and I think that sometimes our handling of that, um, like can be, I think we're allowed to, it's allowed to be clumsy. It's allowed to be funny. Um, cause I, I don't think it's necessarily like very straightforward, you know, like I, we, you and I have talked about this a little bit, Bobby, where we don't want to, because blackness is not, is not a monolith. We don't want to make the assumption that everybody who looks like me stepping into the dance will like immediately get rhythm, immediately understand everything and immediately be Latasha, right? <laughs> like, that's not, it's not everybody and nor should it be. It shouldn't be everybody. Um, everyone who enters this dance should have the opportunity who enters swing dancing should have the opportunity to like um, wrestle with it and, um, learn and learn at whatever pace makes the most sense for them. Um, But then I think when we get into spaces that are similar to swing dancing and that they're Afrocentric, um, the rules are slightly different 
And I think people want to use the rules of swing dancing and superimpose them elsewhere. And so when we get into like the African dance space or like Afrobeat space or Afrofusion space, um, there's, I, I would encourage people to continue to ask questions and not make assumptions about what works in swing dancing, you know? Um, and then for me, I, I was kind of bothered about the assumptions that people were making about me. Like just because I sound like this a lot of the time doesn't mean that I'm not Zambian. You know, like just because I sound familiar or um, I speak with a particular dialect in the U.S. does not that does not negate my blackness. And I know that there are like I'm, I'm like I am proudly black. <laughs> Uh, and so when I hear things like that, I hear people trying to erase aspects of who I am. And I'm like, no, you don't get to erase my lived history. You don't get to erase the fact that I grew up with dancing at home and with a mom, as you mentioned. <laughs> so, something I appreciate so much about you having seen this, you know, over the years is uh, you do such a great job of opening the door for all of that blackness to come in behind you, by which I mean someone meets you in a conversation. It, let's say a non-black person meets you in a conversation. They see this very someone they're very comfortable talking with mm -hmm. based on that accent, based on your just pleasant demeanor, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you're just like you're, you're that you have not closed the door behind you. You have your foot stuck in the door so that it will not close. And you'll just let all of this kind of like stuff come in to help those others understand that just because okay. you speak in this particular way does not mean that you are any more valuable as a human being than, you know, all the blackness that that is not being represented by you in that moment based on their perception. Yeah, Does that makes sense. I actually, I love that. Sorry. Did that make sense? That made total I mean, sense. I actually okay. really love that imagery of the door. Because honestly, when I when I think about myself and my identity, um, even before I heard, like I read about marginalized communities, I'm thinking about like when I was a kid, like I understood like the margins of the paper, right? I understood what it meant for something to be marginable. Mar marginable. Mar marginable is a word. It's a word out there. Um, <laughs> why I feel like the name of this podcast is going to be marginable. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I understood periphery, marginal, all these things that mean to be on the outside. Um, and along that, I think of the threshold. So for the longest part, like for the majority of my life, I've actually imagined myself in the threshold of a door. And so, and that is where I feel like my social location is, is like I am in this door frame. And so, and I can see, and being in a door frame, you can see clearly into different yeah. communities. You can see, you can see down the hall, you can see into a room, you can see into another room. So that idea of like holding the door um, for these different parts of myself, um, these different communities uh, to, like in having patience and space, like I actually really appreciate that. Um, that oh, that's imagery. A beautiful image. It, sorry, that's a beautiful image. Like you standing in a door frame makes perfect sense to me. Like, yeah, that's totally that's just homo. 
Yikes. Yeah. And so. Um, the woman in the door frame. <laughs> yeah. The, the woman in the door frame. <laughs> a new novel. That's just almost Alemani. <laughs> exactly. The best selling novel. Woman in the door frame. Um, but, but that idea of being a part of. And so the, the hard piece about that when you are um, in when you're in the margin you and you have these different perspectives um, to others who are fully in a room, like fully in a room who like they can see the door, they can see the windows into other places, but are fully in like in a room to those people sometimes looks like you're not in the room. Yeah. You know? And so, um, and so it's, I've noticed that a lot of my life has been communicating what it means to be in that doorframe. I'm like, I, since I'm in this doorframe, I am 100% in this room, but that means I'm also 100% in a different room. Like I am yeah. right at this and, you know, I'm right in this intersection space. And so, and we as human beings have a really hard time with that. Um, so those door frame, yeah. those intersections, those um, things that are not fully inside of what we think they are. But I mean, I mean now, now I'm about to get like really deep and ridiculous. This is like my pastoral and Christian upbringing coming out. But like, if you're like in the so you can, are you with me, Bobby? Right, <laughs> if I'm you're with you. <laughs> if you're in the room, right? Your vantage point from wherever you are in the room is slightly different. So even though you might be in the midst of the thing and you might fully be embodied by that thing, your embodiment is slightly different than somebody else who's in a different part of the room. <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and when you look in the other room, you're only seeing a very specific chunk of that room. You're not seeing the whole other room until you step into that, into that door frame. Exactly. Exactly. Until you're in that doorframe. Right. But Chisomo so is blocking, stopping you from being able to get into the other room. And so you just had to take Chisomo's word for what's in the other room. Did I take this in a weird place? Was that not where it's gone? Okay. You just right, got to take her out. Backpedal. Yeah. You just got to <laughs> run really hard and go for the knees, tackle, and then you can be in the other room. Then you'll get it. Just got it. Identify those barriers. Chisomo's that barrier. Overcome that barrier. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's hilarious, Bobby. I love it. But yeah, um, so I, I I I appreciate that, and I think that we have thoroughly um, explored that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it's a great metaphor, and then I totally totally derailed it. It was so good. It was so good. I well, but you brought it up, like that idea of like um and like what you were talking about was more more active. Like I was talking about my positionality and observing, but um I liked the active idea of like being in a space relating to people, getting um meeting people where they're at but not um, diminishing or forgetting who I am and opening that door for other people to see like, Hey, that is, this is me. It's Which like, is, I will meet you. I'll meet you in the door frame. I'll meet you there. I'm sure that's no easy feat. Like, yeah, yeah that's no easy feat that you do there to someone. 
Thank you. Yeah. That's what happens when you um, start hopping oceans when you're like 18 months. So, yeah. My, um, my first international flight was when I was 18 months old. Damn. 19 months old, 18, 19, somewhere around there. And then I didn't, I did not leave this country until I was 22. I went to England after college on a work visa for six months, which was awesome. And uh, I know that I know. So on the one hand, I know that I'm very privileged to have been able to do that. So, for instance, I didn't have like student loans that might have kept me from being able to take a trip like that. Um, And I had a a family that helped kick a little bit of money so that I wouldn't starve to death. Although on the whole, (laughs) I was very proud of how I hit the pavement looking for a place to live and looking for a job. And, and and my dad, my dad was so proud of me for taking that risk. Like, and this is my dad, like, uh, this kind of shock. It's one of those things that your parents do that all of a sudden kind of shocks you. And you're like, wait, I thought you were like, not afraid of anything except for me, you know, hurting myself doing something stupid. Like (laughs) I thought that was the only (laughs) thing that you as a parent were worried about. And, um, and he, uh, but no, my dad was like, I'm, I'm so proud of you for like going to a whole other country and just like setting up shop for six months and just like doing it. And especially because, you know, like I, for those of you who's been in our show before, you know, our history, I'm an ADD kid, not the most like, you know, secure person to be doing this by himself at the time, especially at that age. But, um, yeah, it was one of those things where my dad was so, so proud of me. And, um, and I realized that that was something that he had never done. Like he had, like the, he, he had gone abroad a few times, but like, you know, when he, when he grew up at the time he grew up and at the economic status that he grew up, it just wasn't a, a thing that was either able to do, or if he was, he was probably pretty scared about it being, you know, a guy from Georgia, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that's reminded yeah. me of that. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, um, I, I'm really, I deeply respect people who embark on their own, um, who go to a different country on their own. I mean, I've done it, but I also did that because I was in a, I was in a family that did that, right? Like you're like, I'm going to go to a different country and then I'm going to be a traveling international swing dance instructor and travel freaking all over the world. And so we know, like you said, we know a little bit about your history and your family is a very Georgia family. Like you are Georgian. (laughs) (laughs) We wear the ascots. We, (laughs) we bow and curtsy. Yeah. With the full thing. Yeah. And, but you were like, you know what? I'm going to go to a different place. And that is a big deal. Like taking, um, I take graduate students abroad and they are roughly how old you were when you traveled on your own. And many of my students are traveling internationally for the first time and there's so much apprehension and rightly so like anyone leaving their home in any part of the world, going somewhere else. That's an act of bravery. So also I just imagine you in a bookstore in, in London, like reading books and then writing. Like I see you in cafes, 
just well, being the writer that you are. So, uh, <laughs> I I worked in a hotel, and it was like the front desk clerk, and you know I checked people in, checked people out, got their luggage, and I um, I worked those really odd uh, ho- hotel shifts, which I guess are pretty common. That like one day you're gonna work from three in the morning to noon and the next day you're going to work from like noon to 9 p.m. And then some other day you'll work in the night shift. Um, and so my schedule was all over the place. And I lived in literally, li- you've heard the term custodian closet before. I was literally in what I'm pretty sure was a storage closet that they put a heating pad and a shower in. The, sh- the sink was so small I couldn't wash my dishes in it. So I washed them when I took a shower. So I would be there in the shower with the dishes, cleaning my dishes. And then I did do quite a lot of writing because I was broke and had nothing else. Like I was, I was living off of microwave Indian food, which was delicious, much more delicious than microwave Indian Mm -hmm. food in America at that time. Um, And, and tacos and like bad, like talk, like tortillas and cheese tacos, like, (laughs) and uh, Nutella. So I lived off of those three things and uh, did quite a lot of writing and a crap ton of dancing. Um, the The London scene at, at, at that time especially had like, you could go dancing out pretty much every night. And there was all different kinds of dance. There, there were like, the London scene had so many small, like very specific pockets. There was the pockets of people who love vintage clothing so much that they would wear like They'd be like, my entire outfit is 1936. And you'd be like, wow, that's really impressive. What's that smell? Because their entire outfit was 1936. And they're in these like underground, so many of the clubs were in like basements. Uh, You know, you would walk down. They were sub level and they had no windows and like one door. And so they would be sweat boxes. And uh, there, there are other people who are like, there were World War II reenactors, parts of the scene where they would like hold swing dances because that's what was the perfect addendum to your World War II recreational night. But yeah. what was hilarious is all the British people wanted to be American fighter pilots. And so my grand my granddad flew my granddad flew planes in World War II. Oh and wow. It was hilarious to see all these guys like dressed like my granddad and like for you World War II, for people who are not World War II bus, the World War II pilot is a particularly swaggering part of American <laughs> military history. Like there's a lot of swagger in the military, but when you get like your crusher cap off on the side at a Johnson mm-hmm. angle, when you get your big sheepskin coat, uh, when you get all these things, um, your big aviator glasses, right? Like you just look mm-hmm. pretty badass. And it was so weird to walk up to a dance and have surrounded by my granddad in his like <laughs> old black and white pictures. So they're all, and they all have like pristine clothing, pristine uniforms, uh, like really period uniforms. And then all of a sudden have them all say like, Oi, hello, Bobby. Like to have them all talk in British accents would just make my brain flip. And then there was the other odd thing that there was also a contingent of British people who appreciated dressing up in the Nazi uniforms. Because you have to like do, you know, like, you know, if you're reenacting, you have both right. sides you have to have there. People on both sides. Otherwise, yeah. you just have a bunch yeah. of Amer- Americans and British people shooting at nothing kind of thing. Right. But they yeah. would be there at the dances that night dressed in their Nazi uniforms, which just flipped my 
freaking brain. Like that was just yeah. really wonky and weird. Um, yeah. And then you had, then you had these hardcore jivers, like six count, uh, six count style swing, but it was done in like an evolved club street style. So oh. like you would go into these clubs and see these guys and, and, and gals, and you, you see these dancers that would have this awesome individual style. Like it was individual styling. Like it looked like you were in a oh. honky tonk in some like long distant past because there was no one looking the same. No one danced like they were come out of a ballroom oh. class. Like everyone danced like they had been dancing that way for like 10 or 15 years. And, you know, it was just the way they danced. And there were some really wonky styles, which is also really cool to see. Like, yeah. like your, your legs are going to hurt in 10 years, but I appreciate <laughs> what you're doing. Um, and, and they, they were like eight count fuck off. Like they were so, <laughs> uh, they were very specific about what they were doing in a really cool, like in a really cool way. Um, you know, just, just in that, like, I'm like, this is my dance. This six count yeah. dance is my dance. Um, yeah. and they were feeling it. And, um, and then there was, yeah, there was, then there were like, there were people who were there who were like, Angela Andrews was there. Who's like really tight with Frankie and Norma yeah. and a lot of the original dancers. And there's this wealth of knowledge and you'd see her out on the dance floor. You see Julie Orem out on the dance floor who oh, also wow. got to be tight with Frankie and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and so it was just such yeah. a rich tapestry of dancers. And it was so cool to like, I, I got really lucky in getting some friends who just loved all of it. Like it would have been mm -hmm. easy for me to have gotten just in, you know, in the graces of some Lindy hoppers who like only went out to the nights that were really strong on Lindy hop. But I got in with, uh, Mo Sikhan and, uh, uh, Tim at the time, who unfortunately has passed on, but Tim was a DJ who loved doing record mm -hmm. DJing, which meant he would carry freaking 400 pounds of records all over the place when he DJed. And so like, you see this like really well-dressed, tiny British guy carrying 400 pounds of records to his DJ gigs, oh, but he loved to go in anywhere there was anywhere there was music. He was there. And so like, they were so kind to like drive my ass all over London or meet me at places. Uh, or and, and the main thing they did is drive my ass home from all over London. Like I could get to a yeah. place, but the the trains would close at like eleven or twelve o'clock at that time, and it was just about, almost impossible to like get back to my domicile. Yeah. I, I would be able to go to a dance for an hour when it was kicking. You know, like the dance only starts kicking around a certain time. I would only be there yeah. for like an hour before I'd have to turn around and come home. But they were always like, "Hey, yeah, we'll drive you home." And so I got like so much more life out of that out of that experience thanks to awesome people like them. You heard enough and now it's time for the break. Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at BobbyWhite3. And once again, putting a little IR in the, in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going. And we love doing it and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. 
we want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks and have a great day. All right, let's say that you have someone in your life that loves comics, or possibly you are the person in your life that loves comics. Well, there is a great gift to either give to that loved one who loves comics or to give to yourself a loved one who also loves comics, and that is Noir is the New Black. It is 16 original comic book stories based on black American noir storytelling. You heard me right. It's dark, it's gritty, it's amazing artwork and fantastic storytelling and for all you uh swing dancing buffs out there a lot of the stories are set in the jazz era so that's something really cool about it as well it began as a kickstarter that's where i hopped on and i just got my copy and i love it so check out noir is the new black you can go on to google type in noir is the new black it'll probably take you to the kickstarter page where you can purchase it and enjoy we're back yeah, like what a great experience. And then also um, being connected to community in that way. Like I I feel like when you're young and scrappy and going on adventures, like the one that you described in London and then even some of my experiences in, when I was around that age um, in, in Zambia and traveling around sub-Saharan Africa, um, uh, South Central Africa, or should I just say South Africa? Whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, you can't speak South region. Africa without people being like, oh, I got you. I know what you mean. The country. And you're like, well, no, it's more complicated. Never mind. South more complicated Africa. Than that. So, so Southern Africa around that space. Um, but like those moments where you have to rely on the benevolence of others, like those can be when you win, those are yeah, great absolutely. moments. Right? Yeah. yeah. And and I feel like um, what I was hearing in your story and then even like just reflecting in my own experiences, it's this idea of interdependence and community. And it just sounded like you were able to foster this great community. And, um, and I think interdependence is so good. It's so good for us to be able to have to, to for us to rely on one another. Like um, this whole thing about like being fiercely independent and, the American dream and the lone wolf and all of that. I think that we lose a lot if we are, you know, if we separate ourselves from community. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah, you know, when I, when I look back at that time, it was obviously when I look back at the time, that's what I remember is like all the people that I got to meet and 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 the relationships I had with those people. It's not like, oh, yeah, I went to this cool place and I bought some cool British clothes and I. I worked in a hotel. <laughs> By the way, I met Corey Feldman at the hotel because Corey Feldman came to stay. 1980s hatcher Corey Feldman. I've actually wondered about hotel staff and like how many famous people and things they get to see. Well, we were a three-star yeah. hotel in England. So I don't think we've <laughs> met a lot of famous people. In fact, I think he was there incognito specifically. Like, uh... Yeah, I had it like everything about him said, like, do not recognize who I am. Like he had on the glasses right, like, and like slubby clothes and like exactly <laughs> covering his face. Uh, yeah, I, I just uh, need to run into this 
hotel for a minute or a couple hours and then I'm yeah. gonna go. <laughs> I really I had the urge to go up to his room to see if he trashed it, right? Because you know, I I you know, the stories of those eighties stars would you know, he totally could have trashed the trashed hotel room, but I think it was fine. Yeah. Um there is a a time a couple years ago, I was doing an exploratory visit. Uh, There's a faculty member who uh, was coming to Zambia and learning about Zambia because they're planning on developing a study abroad program and other stuff. And so he and I went to this gallery. I took him to this really great gallery in Lusaka. Um, and it, I think it was like the second year it was running. Anyway, so we walk around. I think there's a coffee shop. We might have even gotten coffee. As we're leaving, he... <laughs> my colleague just like grabs my arm and just like stops. And here's the thing is like, he's not an excitable person at all. Like at all. Like he's super chill, like so chill. And so I just saw this like wave of excitement go through his body. And I was like, what's going on over there? <laughs> and like, he's just like, that dude is famous. That dude is famous. And apparently one of the main people from Shark Tank walked past like i this is terrible i should remember his name but i don't remember his name he's actually from zambia i found out that that time i was like oh uh, look at zambia repping shark tank um and so yeah and he like i actually found out that there are quite a few celebrities that will be in zambia because they can be incognito because oftentimes zambians are like makes sense yeah, they're like, that makes total sense. Or like, I saw you. <laughs> I saw you in that thing one time. But like, our understanding of celebrityhood is very different since Zambia is so small. You know, like they're notable people in Zambia so, who made major contributions, and like people will leave them alone. They're like, oh, I see you on TV. There Whatever. Few, the few you know? times I've met celebrities, especially when I was younger, I was very starstruck and like just sat there and kind of drooled and was really scared to say anything. So like, there were a few authors that I would go for their book signings and stuff, and and meet them. Like Orson Scott Card, I was you know I loved Ender's Game, I, like any other twelve-year-old American kid probably, and um and I got to meet Orson Scott Card, who now I would maybe have some words with him, or now maybe I would just not bother to go meet him and, uh, <laughs> but at the time where's this guy card and so i went to meet him and and my mom dropped me off at the book signing and this was i guess when he was in a lull in his popularity or something like that basically there was a reason why there was only like 10 people in line to sign up for the book and it might have just been the end of the day or it might have just been like that was a time in his career when that was the usual crowd size but like i go up and i hand him the book and i'm just like i'm a really big and, and then he signs the book uh, and then he gives them to me and I walk away. And my mom is not going to pick me up for like another half hour, an hour, because she thought that the line would be out the door or something like that. And so what do I do is I just sit there. And then I realize that I'm like sitting next to Orson Scott Card. Because I'm like in a chair in the corner or whatever. And so I'm watching him talk to people. I'm watching him meet. And then like I kind of inch a little bit closer and just kind of hang out and listen. And it's one of those things where I wonder if like if I saw a video camera of this now, I would be like, Bobby, that was weird. <laughs> Orson Scott Card did not appreciate having a 12-year-old boy just kind of like sit next to him 
with his ear cocked towards him the whole rest of the day. But at the time, it felt good. At the time, it felt like, oh, wow, I'm like kind of hanging out with Orson Scott Card and kind of like listening to what he's saying and like looking at their writer's life. And I'm like, that's yeah. what I thought. You know, a similar thing happened. A similar thing happened freaking, you know, five, six years later when I met Frankie Manning uh, for the second or third. Basically, so if Frank, this is one of my like, this is one of the stories I remember till I die. I was uh, at Frankie Manning's 85th birthday party. So this is 1999. It's like the first or second swing dance event I've ever been to. But I decided to go all out. And I spent like all the money I had at the time in order to go up to New York and like, have a hotel room and go to this event. And it was a um, so they had the main dance at the Roseland Ballroom which did not allow uh, black people in it during the day in the thirties and forties. Mm -hmm. Or if it did, it was only under very specific circumstances. Like you were tonight, you were allowed to come, but no other nights. And um, right. so that was kind of awesome that like Frankie got to celebrate there in the Roseland ballroom. And it was one of the few ballrooms left that was built on the style of the Savoy ballroom. So the Savoy ballroom was built on that grand ballroom style Right. imitating not the Roseland itself, but like that style of ballroom is the kind of Savoy was. And there's very few of those left, especially in New York. And so that was what was cool yeah. about it is that you would get to see Frankie Manning in a space that was close-ish to the Savoy ballroom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And after, so after that, there was going to be a party at Swing 46. Now I get people claustrophobic. And if there was a place to be claustrophobic about people, it was Frankie Manning's 85th birthday in this ballroom. Yeah. And it was like the ballroom was like six people deep around the edge of the ballroom. And they oh. sold tickets and they sold like six fo primary followers bought tickets for every like one primary lead that bought tickets. And so that ring around the dance floor was primary followers they're hoping to grab a dance, you know, hoping to have a good time. And so I was just like dead. I was dead very quickly because you would walk off the dance floor and have another dance immediately right after that. Uh, yeah. And it was a beautiful dead. It was a beautiful exhausted. It was emotionally exhausted. Everything was gone from me. I was just like, wow, this is so cool. I can't believe I'm in this place. And I, I realized that I was just like dead. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and get over to the, swing 46 early because i bet it's just going to be swamped and i don't want to stand anymore and so uh look at me i'm, I'm a 20 20 19 <laughs> i'm a 19 year old boy who doesn't want to stand anymore and uh <laughs> people are sobbing into their listening podcast devices as we speak and <laughs> well, anyway so i go to swing 46 early and there's one booth left and I just like, I probably buy like a Shirley Temple or something like that. <laughs> Give me a Shirley Temple. It's had a, I've had a rough night. And I probably, so I probably <laughs> bought like a $6 drink. I, for non New Yorkers, that's, yeah, it's, I like, bought like the really cheapest cheap. thing and took up a four person <laughs> booth. That's what I did because I was 19 and just was not paying attention to that kind of thing. <laughs> And so I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh man, what a great night. And I'm like, I'm trying to learn Lindy Hop at this time. I don't, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. No one else around me is Lindy Hopping 
at least enough for me to totally understand it or get the idea of what's going on. It looks like this magic trick where like, I just don't understand how people are just making this dance happen. And so I'm just sitting there watching the dance floor of Swing 46, which has some Lindy Hoppers moving around on it and just trying to like soak it all in before I go back to college. And uh, someone, all, someone says, hey, is this seat taken? And I'm just like, oh, no, no, no. And I look over my shoulder and it's Frankie Manning who's asked me if the seat is taken. And so I shift over in the booth and he sits down. And for the next three and a half hours, I sit next to Frankie Manning on his 85th birthday. And all of my freaking idols are walking by saying, hey, Frankie. So like Ryan Francois stops by. Hey, Frankie, happy birthday. Marcus Cox stops by. Hey, Frankie, happy birthday. Like all these people that I've seen in these videotapes over and over and over again are stopping by saying, and they're like, who's this kid? And Frankie's like... Oh, this is my new friend, you know, like being so awesome and stuff like that. But clearly, oh, my God. And I am, first off, like I'm petrified. Just right back to 12-year-old looking at Orson Scott Card being like, I'm a very, I appreciate you greatly. And and I'm just sitting there drinking. I'm not getting up to say, I'm like, I'm not getting up. My seat is gone if I get up. And and I'm, I'm like in this magical place. I get in hindsight. Older Bobby would probably be like, you know, after a few minutes, after saying hi to Frank, you should probably get the seat to somebody else. It is his 85th birthday. <laughs> he has a lot of friends. Yeah. It's a very important thing. And you're just kind of like this guy taking up a space in his booth. You know, like that's what I would go back and say. No one was there to say that to me at the time. <laughs> so I basically uh, stole a place next to Frankie Manning for three and a half hours on his birthday. And he did like we did talk about we chatted about stuff like he would ask me about. Uh, you know, I grew up in Georgia and he had he has granddaughter at that time who was in Georgia in college. And so, like, we chat about that a little bit. I basically just eavesdropped on all the great conversations he was having. But, yeah, that's that's how do we get onto the subject? Oh, talking about famous people and how <laughs> we meet famous people. Being in New York, there's there's yeah. quite a lot of famous people around. I remember walking down the street one time with Jessica and Jessica's like, I think there's Anne Hathaway in front of us. And I don't know Anne Hathaway well enough to know what she looks like, especially when they're in New York incognito, when they like have on a big wool hat and right. big sunglasses and like a hoodie and they're mm -hmm. looking as schlubby as possible. And yet there's still like clearly mm -hmm. a photographer down the street taking a picture of her and like another one running by taking a picture of her and like... And yeah. that, and when you see that action, it makes you even less wanting to like intrude right. in their lives because you're like, God damn, they got put up with that every day. Like, I'm not going to be the guy on the street who's like, loved you in Devil Wears Prada. You know, <laughs> was she in Devil Wears Prada? Okay, good. she was. Yeah, yeah, good job, Bobby. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, now that you say that about New York, I actually think that that's kind of similar to how Zambians are with celebrities. Like, I've heard that there's a culture in New York because there are so many famous people that um, you can tell an out-of-towner because a person who's not from New York would go up to celebrity and be like, oh, my God, I know you're from this thing. Can I take a picture with you? Um, whereas, like, New Yorkers are like, just let them live in peace let them enjoy this deli in peace you know it seems like there's this unspoken kind of respect and code that you all uh, like adhere to um 
but oh man, I love that story about Frankie. I love it. Also, like there is a, there's something to be said about like you were an enterprising a 19 year old and you got there and you got a seat. So, and he chose to sit next to you. Yeah. And at yeah, no point in time was point. he like, like Frankie, hey. He might not have been able to get yeah. a seat and or he would have had to have been very awkward about like taking his his God-given right as being Frankie Manning to get a seat. Like, you know, I'm sure he could have like old man his yeah. way into a seat, but I'm glad he didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. So he he saw that there was space and was like and, and the New Yorker that he was. He was like, I'm going to sit here and it's going to be great. Um, and if he really wanted you, I mean, I don't, I can't speak on his behalf, but I'm sure if he really wanted you gone, he could have been like, Hey kid, <laughs> I got, I got a friend. If I've, uh, they sit down, if I know anything you know, about Frankie Manning is that he would never have said that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that I know everything about Frankie Manning, but I'm pretty sure he would have never pushed he me out of that booth. That. I, uh, yeah. Based on what I know about, yeah. Um, and but uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. Pass that across. I, I'm just thinking about my elders. My elders would have done that. They'd be like, someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a very good point. Someone else. And you know what? Looking back again, I was I um, I'm a daydreaming <laughs> ADD college student at this time who's just like awestruck with with you know the person who I'm sitting next to. There could have been hints all over the place from other people. There could have been like, should, man, um, my foot is, I'm just really sore right now. Do you mind if I get in? Like, there could have been, there could have been like, hey, what's your name? Yeah, that's, thank you so much for giving Frankie your booth. Uh, yeah, that was great. You know, there could have been hints that like, if I look back now and saw the videotape of the people walking by, or maybe it's the exact opposite. Maybe Frankie knows so many people and is so close with so many people that they just assume that I was in. They just assume that like this yeah. kid is like Frankie's like right hand. Like if he's sitting next to Frankie, he's yeah. he's there. He's allowed. Like that. Yeah. I could also. I that was probably more likely the case looking back at it. <laughs> <laughs>